here this evening. And yeah, we took the youngest and said, the rest of you kids deal with each other. We're out of here. If you're not in your Bible, turn back to Acts chapter 6. I was asked to speak on this subject of deacons, which is an important subject. I realize that uh, church polity is not the most exciting of issues to think about. <clears throat> polity meaning the way church government is formed and put together, or any government for that matter. But the offices and officers of the church are essential to a healthy church. I was been in my spare time uh, reading a biography of George Washington and the, the founding of our country and what a significant time and all the effort and dialogue that they went into to shape the U.S. government, right? They win the war and now we've got to figure out what are we going to do now? Right? We don't even have uh, anything to, to shape it. Most of the colonists didn't want a king. They didn't want the president to be an American king. And that made George Washington very, a very popular candidate. He actually was the unanimously elected president, received all the electoral votes. Because George Washington didn't have any children, so there was no descendants that could claim a dynasty and that they should be the heir to the throne. And then just the, the discussion that went on in the formation of the nation of dividing the government into three branches to kind of separate power, right? If you took a good government class in, in school, you uh, know these things. But really, in many ways, the decisions that they made at that point have effectively helped preserve our nation. Uh, the two, the houses of Congress, that was a major sticking point as they're trying to figure out how to determine representation in the uh, houses of Congress. The larger states wanted it to be based on population, right? We got more people, so we should have more representation. Well, the smaller states said, if you do that, we're not joining because... We'll never get a vote because Rhode Island, we don't have any people, we, you know. And so they came up with, as you hopefully know from civics and government, is that each state gets the same number of senators, two, but then representatives in the House is based upon population. And again, how that has helped us, right? Because the decisions that if they had based everything on population... Where would we be today? Uh, a handful of states would make every decision. And so I say that not to give a history lesson, um, but to demonstrate the importance of church polity, because it's not really most people's favorite subject. Um, thankfully, in the church, we don't need to brainstorm and come up with our, our own ideas on how to order the church that the Scriptures give it to us, and we read that, and I appreciate Kevin read verse 15 in chapter 3, that you may know how to behave yourself in the house of God. That's why I wrote these things, that God takes a very uh, direct interest in His church and in His house and how things are done, and He has specific instructions and wants it to be done well, 
and uh, for it to be that pillar and ground of the truth. Yet, when it comes to church polity and decisions such as deacons and officers, is often what distinguishes between different churches, between different denominations. You probably know this. I grew up in an area where there wasn't a lot of diversity in churches, but uh, Presbyterians, for example, you probably are aware, have three offices and not two. So they have pastors and then elders and then deacons. Um, There's the single pastor deacon board model. That's probably more of what I grew up under. Uh, And so what usually happens is that we come up with polities based on our experience instead of going to the Bible. And so usually after a church has had a bad experience with a a pastor being a little overbearing, the deacons determine, well, we're not going to let that happen again. And so they put themselves in a position where the pastor answers to them. And it just creates a very unhealthy situations in churches. And so that's why tonight we're going to look at kind of a broad where the Bible speaks to this issue and try to just draw out principles that shape. It doesn't outline every minute detail, but it gives the overarching structure of how to go about uh, the, the value and various aspects of the role uh, of deacon. This was one of the first subjects I kind of cut my teeth on when I was in college and was really, you know, you go to college and it's kind of like, I don't have parents, I don't have grandparents, uh, I went to Central Michigan, so you go to a secular college, so nobody there cares if you go to church, and uh, so start looking for a church, and, and it, well, what in the world am I even looking for? I had no idea, like, uh Okay, what, what's important? Well, I would like preaching. I don't even know what kind of preaching or what that really means, but I, I would like them to read the Bible and tell me what the Bible means. And then it would be good if it actually like hit me and I understood it. Um, and so as I went through that, I finally settled into this church, and it had gone through a, just a nasty split. Right, Baptists, we multiply by division. And... Uh, the, there was a vote that came down to one vote within the congregation, one way or the other, and split the church, pastor on one side and the rest on the other side. Incidentally, I've been in, after the fact, mind you, can't lay anything to my, three times, three churches where they had a vote that came down to one vote uh, and split. And so... This church, even though I came in after they had split, which is usually my mantra now, um, and they had decided there was division on how are we going to form this because we don't want that to happen again. <laughs> and so they brought in a new pastor, and then they were still hashing it out in between them. And so they had a Bible study once a week for several years on how are we going to order the church with the offices and the officers and the constitution and how are we going to put the church polity together? So I'm new and fresh, like, hey, let's study the Bible. Let's get in there and read everything that it has to say and figure out what God is. And so I dove in and I'm going back and getting a concordance out. I didn't even know where the passages were and and, and reading all the passages. And then I... Uh, as I got through reading it, I started to form conclusions 
And in many ways, that was seminal in me becoming a Reformed Baptist because I started to see the plurality. Every time the elders are used, there's a plurality of elders. Like, this isn't hard. I mean, I'm not a Bible scholar. I'm, I'm just reading every verse in the Bible that says it, says it in a plurality. And there's two offices. The, I remember reading Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. The church has bishops and deacons. That was who the letter was addressed to. I thought, well, that's clear enough and straightforward enough. And... and I went through college, graduated and left, and they, would you believe, they were still having a weekly Bible study on what does the Bible have to say about this issue. So you're gonna, we're going to condense that five-year study tonight into a, a much less of an um, extensive. The Confession says in Article 8 under Church or Paragraph 8, it's a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ. That's all we're trying to find. Consists of officers and members and the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church for the peculiar administration of the ordinances, the execution of power or duty, which he entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world are bishops or elders and deacons, incites Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Acts 20, verse 17 and 28. So the point I wanted to draw out of that is that when we are looking at officers for the church, the question we're trying to answer is not who or what do I prefer? What are we trying to find? Who has Christ calling and setting apart for this position? Now, the reason I say that is you're, when, you, when we vote on things like this, it is how, as I seek the Lord in prayer, how is he leading his church? That's the essence of your vote. You're trying to discern the will of God. So, unless your preference is always how God leads the church, those may not always be the same. I've been a part of church decisions that the way the vote went or who was a nominee, those type of things, wasn't who I necessarily would have preferred. Doesn't mean I necessarily disagreed with the decision. Right? Because in America, when we have an election, we vote and we think, well, who do I want? And, and, and the reason I bring this up is because this is, it's not the same as that when we come to the church. We're trying to discern what does Christ want in his church. That's what we're trying to discern. And we have methods of, you know, fleshing how to go about that, which we see a little bit in Acts 6, and, and there's some flexibility in that, but I just want to throw that thought out there, that it's not necessarily and primarily about our preference, because that may not always be. I hope you have been a Christian long enough to realize that God's preference and your preference aren't always the same, right? I hope not, <laughs> or else... Uh, you may be God would be one answer to that, or not. And so we have to be careful with that. 
Uh, so the confession goes on in, a, in another, I think it's chapter or paragraph 10, um, and says, the way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit under the office of bishop or elder in a church is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself, solemnly set apart by, with fasting and prayer. Right? It's a serious decision. Why would we fast? Well, we're saying no to my flesh and what I want. We're trying to discern the mind of God. With the imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any there before constituted therein, and of a deacon, that he be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands, and it gives uh, the description. So uh, we have these two offices. There's a few distinctions I want to make of that tonight. Is their scriptural function? I'll talk briefly, you know, what does a deacon do? Why are they functioning? Their appointment and then their qualifications, time willing. Where's I probably need a clock here. So, I, oh, there it is. So I'll try to keep at least one eye on that. Hopefully the batteries are all charged. So looking at these, the biblical function, a deacon is not there to keep the pastor in check. Right? I have been in churches where they literally thought, I've had them verbalize that they, that was their perception, that the deacons are there to keep the pastor in line. Too often the appointment of deacons becomes a popularity contest. It's not that either. It's not to be a position desired for the sake of preeminence. It's actually the exact opposite of the design of the position. It's, a deacon is the position of a servant. In Acts 6, we read of the original appointment of deacons. We can learn the divine intention for the office. The office was created when important matters, such as the feeding of widows, were being neglected. Something that would be cause reproach to come on the church because of neglect. When this concern was voiced to the elders, they responded by creating an office specially to provide for the need. If there is no need, it may be asking for trouble to co- create a possession, position with no job description, requirements, or responsibilities. Just a thought there. When the elders were confronted, they determined how many to adequately oversee the work. They determined this would require seven men to attend to these widows. As we have health issues and COVID and all these challenges, we may have to start getting more deacons to be able to go minister to situations, although they're usually in quarantine, so you can't even really get in there to minister. They instructed the church of necessary qualifications for one to represent the church in this capacity. They gave two primary qualifications. Notice in chapter 6, and verse 3, wherefore, right? Verse 2, we, we shouldn't leave the Word of God to serve tables, that priority distinction. Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Men that have a good reputation and are full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Those are the two 
primary qualifications. When we get to 1 Timothy 3, those are elaborated on a little more fully. But it shows the seriousness which the church viewed, even the temporal affairs of the church, that they would require men full of the Holy Ghost in order to be able to represent in this capacity. And so it gives these very, that raises a high standard for this office, and only those meeting the scriptural qualifications should be considered for the office. I remember as a young Christian, it, it disturbed me, it still does to a certain degree, when as I get, you know, I'm getting to know people in the church, as this church I was at in college, which shall remain anonymous, but... I remember hearing about who the deacons were, and I'm thinking, I, I don't know that I've met them. I mean, this isn't a large church. Like, where are they at? Oh, they don't attend services faithfully? They, they don't attend Sunday school? Like, and they're officers in the church? I just thought, that doesn't seem good. And the more I've learned, the more I'm thinking, no, that's really not good. You're an example you're to be, look at the list of the men in Scripture, not just in this list, but Stephen and Philip. I mean, those were men that were full of the Holy Spirit, that were preaching and revivals and things are breaking out as a result of their ministry. The New Testament church there in verse 15 of 1 Timothy is called the house of God. It bears his name. His reputation in society is staked beyond, upon the behavior of his house. God has always taken his house very seriously. And one of the indicators of how seriously he takes it is to consider the qualifications required to be an officer in his house. Right? If you looked at our presidents and Congress and governors, how many of them would even qualify to be an officer in God's house. Very few, if any, full of the Holy Ghost, full of wisdom, honest report and reputation. They're extensive. He's given two offices, the bishops or pastors or elders, to oversee spiritual matters, and the office of a deacon to oversee temporal matters. It was very similar to the Old Testament system where you had the priesthood overseeing the intercession and the spiritual side of things, but then you also had the Levites who ministered there and kind of cleaned up. And if you understand that whole system, that was quite a job, right? We're killing a lot of animals. We're skinning them. We're cutting them in half. We're taking their blood. We're, I mean, you're, you're working as a butcher shop, Right? We don't often think of that Old Testament tabernacle system as being a butcher shop, but it, I mean, they, they were bloody and cleaning up carcasses and burning them and taking ashes out of the camp and all that that uh, rule entailed. And so you see in Acts chapter 6, when they did this, what was the result of it? Verse 7 and the word of God increased as a result of that. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. 
And a great number of the priests were obedient to the faith. See, when that role took care of this neglect and this issue, it allowed the Word of God, which had been growing, and now there's some turmoil and there's some strife, and they resolve that, and now it continues growing again and doing, uh, doing well and flourishing. So there's several. Flip over now, if you would, to First uh, Timothy chapter 3, and I want to just run through these qualifications and understanding their significance in the role. In 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 and 9, we see that there was certain personal qualifications that a deacon needs to have. The deacons must be grave, serious. That word means honorable, venerable, dignified, respectable. Men of Acts 6, honest report, good reputation. That is a necessary qualification, and really all the other qualifications really kind of unpack that. But that is necessary, because you will be an officer of the Lord's church, His reputation, the reputation of the church, and the gospel are at stake. When someone discovers who the deacons are in a church, that should be a, an attraction. Oh, really? Not a, oh, really? He is a, I had that experience before in my life. I was kind of informally witnessing to someone and, you know, and kind of mentioned, hey, you know him? Well, I know him. He's, and he, and the, and then the reaction was, oh, no. Like, yeah, you don't know who he really is. And this was a coworker, And I thought, man, this is going to, that guy, he's a good guy. You know, kind of a name drop situation. And that was not the effect that it had. Then there's some negative qualifications that kind of unpack that one necessary one. What does it mean to be grave or, seri- or to be respectable, reverent, venerable? Here's things you can't be if you have that. You can't be double-tongued. That was the particular issue with this gentleman that I'm referring to. Not given to much wine, not greedy, right? There's obvious reasons why these would be, right? You don't want a greedy deacon in charge of the money, (laughs) right? So the, the job requirements fit the job description. Not given to much wine. I, one of the most grievous church situations that I have ever been involved in, or I wasn't involved but aware of and trying to help another church through a situation, was where, where a deacon was intoxicated and some really bad things happened. I'll leave it at that really bad things, uh, to the point that he's in, in prison probably for the rest of his life. And I remember meeting him and thinking, kind of smells like liquor. Like, this is a deacon in the church? Something, I remember telling my wife, something doesn't seem right there. 
And then it was about a year or two later, this whole scandal thing came out, and what in the world? Well, he'd, he'd had a little bit too much to drink one night, and bad things happened. Right? That's a requirement. It's not somebody who's given to that. Not somebody who's double-tongued. Not somebody who's given to wine. Not somebody who's greedy. See how they're all negative? Not this, not this, and not this. Right? So it clarifies. Because at one failure in these areas can ruin a church. Can ruin and cause reproach. And it's just can be a terrible thing. You don't want, when I think of double tongue, you don't want somebody who starts fires, starts problems. I always thought about that in, in school administration is when putting somebody in a leadership role, are they going to start any problems? <laughs> because we need them to be putting fires out, not creating them. Right? That's the requirement we have for who gets to be in charge of the kids when mom and dad are gone. Are you going to be contributing to the problem or are you going to be solving the problem? Because there will be problems. Not given to excess. Not greedy. Right? The last thing I put in my notes here, the last thing this world needs is another financial scandal in a church. That's the last thing we need. And so there's these requirements, these personal qualifications. Then there's a natural qualification. Notice in verse, uh, after they, uh, verse 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience, having a, a under, clear understanding of the gospel, of assurance of salvation. There's various commentators who interpret what, what that means of holding the mystery of the faith. Well, the gospel's a mystery, and holding that clearly and boldly, holding and embracing a gospel lifestyle, right? Obviously, we'd like our deacons to be saved. That would be a good thing. Probably best not to have unconverted deacons. Right? Also because they're going to be recognized and brought before the church and set up as an example. This is somebody whose example you should follow, not only of the elders, but also of a deacon. And the Bible tells us that, James 3, that those who teach and are in that type of a position have greater judgment. Right? You think about examples in the Old Testament, they weren't deacons, but in the priesthood and you have Eli's sons, and man, they're about the epitome of everything that could go wrong and how it brought reproach on uh, those things. Then secondly, under this, there's proven qualifications. If you notice verse 10, let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless, right? There's a testing record. They have to be proven and not a novice, it uses this in reference to a, pa a bishop or pastor elder, and then also to this office, let these also be proven, not a novice. Lest they be lifted up with pride, is verse 6, I think is what the lest, let these also is referring to. 
lest they be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There are some people who cannot handle being in a position of prominence. It just feeds their ego or for whatever reason. I have kids that way. They're fine as a subordinate. You put them in charge of somebody and they, <laughs> whoa, time out. You're, you know, you're out of control. You're a little whatever. And they just can't handle it. And so they need to be tested and proven and blameless without accusation. I like what Gill said about this. They're blameless, not before God, right? Because none of us are, but in the sight of men. Meaning that good honest report, good reputation we read about in uh, Acts chapter 6. So why is that? Because we don't want them to fall into reproach. We don't want them to bring shame. We don't want them to bring uh, this upon the church. So there are these various personal qualifications that need to be proven. And then lastly, there are certain paternal requirements and qualifications that how they rule their house and their home, right? We know the, the verse up above, if a man know not how to rule his own house, where he has this sphere of authority, how can he take care of the church of God? And so as you grow as a Christian, your primary focus is upon yourself. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to know the Scriptures. I need to live the Scriptures. I need to grow in sanctification, possess my vessel in sanctification and honor. And then if you're married... You have a sphere of responsibility to husband and love and cherish your wife. And her spiritual good is part of your responsibility. That your wife, as you're husbanding her, that she's fruitful and flourishing, and it's an indicator of your spirituality, your spiritual maturity. And then what's the obvious? As those concentric circles work out, then how are your children? You know, today I had to grab one of my children. <laughs> I didn't have to physically grab him, but I thought about it. As he, was, he had his shoes off and was walking along the, the chairs of the church, as I'm trying to have a conversation with someone, and here's my kid, you know, hey, get up, sit, you know, you know, and not let that, well, he's a runner, you know, what am I going to do? He likes to go up on the platform and grab the mic and, you know, is bringing that under control. You know, he's, he just turned seven yesterday, so it, there's still time yet, but at the same time, let's fix it now, right? Unless he's 18 running around and, you know, you get the point. And so then it works out from there, and this is why then your reputation in the community, your Christianity needs to be impacting how you are at work. That when they hear that you're an officer in the church or that you're a member of the church, they don't think, oh, really? <laughs> That's one church I'd never attend. But they think, oh, really? You know, I know I just my, talked to my in-laws recently, and my mother-in-law was very excited because her boss uh, said they want to come to their church. That should, that's a compliment. That one of your coworkers says, where do you go to church? I would like to go there. If it's producing people like you, we could use more of that. Instead of you invite them and they're like, uh, 
we're busy. You know, I realize that happens, you understand, but she was very encouraged that, hey, he just came up out of the blue and asked where we went to church and wants to go there. That's a good sign of a healthy situation. Because as the officers of a church, they're examples, right, that we're wanting to learn from their example, learn from their spiritual life, learn from their marriage, learn from their children, learn from how they manage their finances, learn how they temper appetites in their drinking or various things that are mentioned there, and that they are set up as that as an officer. Then it gives requirements, even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Right? Even the wife. Why? Because the wife is going to be involved in these things as well. Uh, you don't want the deacon going and ministering to a very difficult situation, and then the wife finds out about it, and everybody in the community knows about it. Right? You can see how that would be a bad thing? How that would cause people to turtle up and not want to be transparent and be able to deal with it is because, well, if the pastor's wife or the deacon's wife gets a hold of that, that's, everybody's going to know that one. Can't have that. So there's reasons behind these re- requirements, uh, the job description, if you will, the language that we maybe use. And the devil will exploit these things. He'll take advantage of them. Right? In, in early warfare in the Revolutionary War, it was kind of customary war practice that you didn't shoot the generals because that was dishonorable. That's not the warfare we're in. More than happy. Oh, you're supposed to be an example? Well, let's just tarnish. Let's just ruin that. And as the Revolutionary War went along, they started to taking them prisoner of war where they wouldn't used to. They used to release the general, take the soldiers, and there's various things, exchange them or whatever. Our, our enemy will exploit weakness. He walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We should not hand the enemy a loaded gun, not give him plenty to grab a hold of. So he gives their homes and how they rule. Why is this so important? I think I've emphasized it in many ways, the reputation of God. But here's another practical application of it. Rarely is a church going to rise above the character, spirituality, and maturity of its officers. Rarely. Where the church is going to be more spiritual than their leaders. Right? The disciple will be as his master. Right? We follow their example. So who a church puts as the example, I don't know that people consciously do this. Maybe subconsciously, but are not probably going to be more zealous and more. They're, they're going to follow that and maybe say, well, we don't need to be quite that, so maybe we'll, we'll split the difference here. You understand what I'm saying? Is there is a direct... So if you have carnal officers, what can you expect is going to happen in the church? If you have... What did Acts 6 say? Men full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom. 
Now, what is likely to be the trickle-down effect of that? Is that people see, oh, that's the example. That's the pattern we need to be following. That's how we need our marriage to be and our children to be. And, you know, we learn by imitation, right? Children learn to talk. This is kind of weird to me, but by watching how their parents move their mouth when they make a, a word, right? This is how I learned most mechanical things because I didn't get it by nature. As I see what somebody else and how they did that and think, oh, that's how that goes, right? Let me try to do that. And then I foul it all up and then I call a mechanic to come fix my problems, right? Because it's not a perfect system of imitation, And that is true in the spiritual life. One way to grow as a Christian is find somebody you respect, ideally in your church, but if not, outside of your church, and say, hey, how can I learn from that person? I want to be more like they are. And have mentors. Some of the greatest help in my Christian life has been having godly men who mentored and just learning from them, asking for wisdom. How do you how do you make this decision? How do I deal with this with my child? Well, Brother John, don't know if I would do that. <laughs> Why not? Seems like a great idea. Brother John, for whatever reason, a lot of my mentors are from the South. And they just had that twang about them. And I listen, and I'm the kind of push back. Well, why do you? Okay, explain it to me. I don't understand. Well, you know, you can do it that way. <laughs> I've just found that it doesn't work that way. Okay, if you say so. And so finding other people that you can look up to and say, hey, I could learn from this person. I had a young man one time, I was encouraging him in various things, and, and he made this statement that, well, I don't think there's any, anyone in this church I would like to pattern my life after. And I thought, mm, that's a problem. Uh, they're a little over-spiritual. Because whether you, you may not learn everything from everybody, but mo- what I have found is with God's people, there's usually a trait in just about every one of them that you could learn something from and that you could benefit and say, you know what, he really has this grace and I could use more of that in my life. This person has this gift, I can learn from them. But when you get to the place where you just can't learn, there's nobody I can learn from. And he was saying it in a, I thought, wow, you're telling on yourself. It's just not a healthy place to be. So as we come then to the office of a deacon, as he finishes here, notice it says in verse 13, For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. See, there's using the office of a deacon and then there's using the office of a deacon well. Using it well. Upholding the integrity of the office well. And it can be a great discouragement to Christians when they see people in positions of authority who just don't, are not worthy of being followed, are a poor example. 
We can think about even officers in our own state and our country and look at presidents and say, did they, were, they, were they, wait, we rank presidents of who is the best and who is good. And to be an example for others to follow. Some of the great deacons of the past, Stephen and Philip and the household of Stephanus, if he wasn't a deacon, he had the spirit of a deacon. One man said, do not underestimate the potential influence of the diaconate can have on a local church. Deacons can do mighty deeds for God and his people. They can expand their ministry in many ways. They can profoundly influence the congregation. They can be living examples of Christ-like compassion and mercy. So the charge to use the office well. You purchased to yourselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith. Let me close with this. God takes his house very seriously, just like we take our houses seriously, all right? My wife takes it seriously. If I'm tracking in snow, I mean, hey, I just went out and cleared the driveway and the, you know, kind of back off a little bit and I, give me a little leeway to track in. No, we have white carpet in this room. <laughs> Dummy. You know, she didn't say that, but like, duh, don't track in in this room. But we take our houses very seriously and God takes his house because it's the pillar and ground the buttress of the truth. And so I challenge you as a church, take this office very seriously. Take it very seriously. And use it well. Understand what it is. And as the church in Acts chapter 6, it'll be a blessing. It'll be a blessing the gospel will multiply. The church will grow. Good things happen when we order the house well. And so I encourage you, as we, you look at those scriptures, to understand and the significance of, of something maybe as boring as polity. But just understanding it's, it's significant because it's God's house. It's God's house. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the wisdom that you have the simplicity you have in designing the offices and the officers of your church. And God, I pray that you would help Harbor Church, that you would help your churches across this world to understand how to behave in God's house, in your house. God, help us to understand, help us to follow, help us to exemplify the character and being spirit-filled. And even if we're not an officer, to aspire to meet these commandments, to, to see these qualifications as something that we also should have in our life. And that, God, you would be glorified in your church. That it would be a blessing to your people, to the community, and to the nations. We thank you for those who have served and used the offices well. We thank you for them. What a gift they are. 
God, we pray that you would raise up more and that you would strengthen your church. In Christ's name, amen.